Between the 8th and 11th centuries AD in Scandinavia, which includes modern-day Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, uh, lived a group of people known as the Vikings. And during this time, the Viking Age, the Vikings gained a fearsome reputation across Europe for their piracy and pillaging. And the historical record tells us that the Vikings sailed to and invaded modern-day England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Iceland, France, Spain, Portugal, even parts of Russia, even parts of Eastern Asia. I mean, they went all over the place. And one of the major reasons the Vikings raided so many other nations was because violence and warfare were an integral part of Viking life. Uh, culturally, a Viking's honor was inextricably connected to his or her proclivity for violence. Uh, for example, if I was a Viking and someone insulted me or my family, it would be seen as cowardly for me to go to that person and say, hey, uh, Billy Goat Bjorn, it's uh, Dylan the Destroyer here. Hey, uh, listen, I really didn't appreciate those things you said about me. They hurt my feelings. And I, uh, just want to come over here and talk to you about it personally so that, you know, maybe we can work through it together. What do you say? No. No. A Viking with any honor would only respond with violence. Billy Goat Bjorn, you will never insult me again because I am going to cut out your tongue. Right? Culturally violent and religiously as worshipers of the Norse warrior gods and goddess, uh, goddesses, Odin and Frigg and Thor and all those guys, uh, the Vikings believed that the most honorable way to die was in battle. And they believed that half of the Vikings who died in battle here on earth would be chosen by Odin to go to Valhalla, the heavenly realm where all day they would fight each other and then all evening they would feast together in Odin's hall and then the next day they'd go out and do the same thing all over again, over and over again for all eternity until a time called Ragnarok where there would be kind of an Armageddon, a last battle here on earth between Odin and his Vikings and a giant evil wolf called Fenrir where basically everybody dies. Anyways, the point is that violence and warfare were an integral part of Viking culture and religion, and so much so that they were always seeking out other people to fight. But on June 8th, 793 AD, in the Viking raid on Lindisfarne, which is a island off the northeast coast of modern-day England, formerly known as Northumbria, the Vikings were confronted by something they had never known or heard of before. See, Lindisfarne was the home of a large monastery and was, at one time, the central base for Christian evangelism and missions in Northumbria. And so, as the Vikings raided Lindisfarne, pillaging their monastery and destroying their church, and slaughtering the Christians who lived there, the Vikings were confronted by Christianity and Christian culture. 
for the very first time, historians say. And interestingly, instead of being vehemently opposed to Christianity, as you might think, the Vikings were actually pretty intrigued with Christianity. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, especially in the book of Revelation, is depicted as a victorious, invincible warrior over the powers of evil. And a lot of the Vikings actually adopted Jesus as another one of their gods, which obviously doesn't work for Jesus. But long story short, among the Vikings, Norse paganism eventually died out and Christianity took over for real. And by the mid 11th century, Christianity had become well established in Denmark and Norway. And by the 12th century, in Sweden as well. Meaning, God had a plan to save some untold thousands upon thousands of Vikings and the descendants of Scandinavians who came from them initially through their own sinful actions as they raided Christian lands and consequently learned about the God they worshiped. Meaning, God can bring good out of evil, even for the benefit of evildoers. Meaning, God is incredibly mysterious, yet clearly gracious in his ways. And I open with this interesting little story, this little piece of history, because in the book we're gonna be looking at this morning, Habakkuk, we see a similar story and one man's journey of faith through it. And this guy, Habakkuk, is undoubtedly the philosopher prophet among the minor prophets because he's always asking these big why questions. Lord, why are things this way? Lord, why are you allowing these things to happen? Lord, why, why, why? He longs to know. He's a man who longs for understanding. And so we're gonna look at Habakkuk's big why questions and God's responses, and then we'll look at Habakkuk's responses to God's responses. But before we do, let's pray and just ask God to be with us this morning as we look at his word. Oh Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would Illuminate your word and provide insight and wisdom where we lack knowledge and understanding. And God, help me, help me, Lord, to not speak a word that would be unhelpful or untruthful in any way this morning. And God, may you increase our faith in you this morning for your glory alone. Amen. So the structure of the book of Habakkuk is pretty simple. And if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn there now. The structure is pretty simple. So we see an introduction in chapter one, verse one. And then we see Habakkuk's first why question in chapter one, verses two through four. Then we see God's first answer in chapter one, verses five through 11. Then we see Habakkuk's second why question in chapter one, verses 12 through chapter two, verse one. And then comes God's second answer in chapter two, verses two through 20. And then finally, we see Habakkuk's prayer, which is composed of all of chapter three. So 
after the introduction in chapter one, which just tells us, chapter one, verse one, which just tells us that uh, the prophet who's speaking is a guy named Habakkuk, and that's really all we know about him. Um, We hear his first why question in chapter one, verses two through four. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Now, we know from some of the context provided later in the book that Habakkuk is specifically talking about the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah. And we also see later in the book that it's evident that the Babylonian captivity of Judah hasn't happened yet. So Habakkuk is prophesying in Judah sometime before 586 BC, which was the year the Babylonians invaded Judah. And at this time in Judah, and really for the last hundred or so years before the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC, only one of the seven Judean kings who reigned during that time period was faithful to God, King Josiah. And the rest were wicked kings. And under their leadership, the kingdom of Judah just degenerated into more and more base levels of paganism and idolatry and corruption and injustice and outright rebellion against God and his word. And here in chapter one, verses two through four, Habakkuk talks about how the law is paralyzed and true justice never goes forth and the wicked surround the righteous. It's like the Wild West out there where the law is anything goes and more guys are wearing black hats than white hats, if you know what I mean. And so here, Habakkuk asks, Lord, why are you not hearing? And why are you not saving? And why are you idly, thumb-twiddlingly looking at wrong? And all of those questions essentially boil down to a question of God's apparent inactivity. He's basically asking, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? And here's God's first answer, chapter one, verses five through 11. God says, uh, let's start with verse five. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Wow. So Habakkuk had asked God, why aren't you hearing? And here, God responds, showing that he does hear. He does hear his prayers, and he says that he has already begun answering them. So God is not inactive. He is working, but it's all behind the scenes, and it's not for all eyes to see or for all ears to hear or for all hearts to fathom, at least not yet. And for Habakkuk, 
this response and these words from God must have been like a light beginning to appear at the end of this tunnel. Because it's, it's like Habakkuk's in this tunnel and he's like, Lord, all I hear is the echo of my own voice and it's very dark in here and I see no light. And then here comes this response and it's like a little light begins to appear at the end of that tunnel, right? But we then read in verse six, God continuing to share his plan. He says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Now, the Chaldeans were a semi-nomadic people group who lived in southern Babylon and who rose to power and became the last dynasty to rule over Babylon. So the word Chaldean is virtually synonymous with the word Babylonian. Meaning, here, God is saying that the way he is going to deal with Judah's sin and rebellion is to raise up the pagan Babylonians to attack them. And if that strikes you as utterly confusing, then join Habakkuk. (laughs) Because now it appears that the light at the end of that tunnel is a train. And then it gets even more confusing because in verses seven through 11, God himself describes the Babylonians' corruption and violence and pride and godlessness, showing that he knows full well just how wicked and sinful they are. And I guess what we can say here is that God's judgments are often incomprehensible to the minds of men. God's judgments are often incomprehensible to the minds of men. They're not what we would do, when we would do it, how we would do it. But you know what God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses eight and nine? He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and sometimes it's easy to believe that, right? Especially when things in our lives turn out way better than we expected, and we sense God's hand all over it. Man, God certainly knows what he's doing. But in other times, it's not that easy. And it requires serious faith, serious trust in God. And for Habakkuk right now is one of those other times. Here's his second why question. Chapter one, verse 12, through chapter two, verse one. Let's start with verse 13. He, he says this to God, he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So here's the puzzling thing in Habakkuk's mind. He knows that God is holy. He is of purer eyes than to see evil. 
and he knows that God is just. He cannot look approvingly at wrong. And he knows that Judah is guilty of sin and rebellion and deserves judgment. But you know what? He also knows that Babylon is even more wicked and sinful than Judah. And yet, it's the Babylonians whom God has chosen to use as his instrument of judgment against Judah. And Habakkuk says, what? Why are you letting Babylon off the hook? And pun intended because in verses 14 through 17, he describes Babylon as a big fish in the sea who cannot be caught and who is subject to no law and who just goes on capturing and killing smaller, helpless fish like Judah without ever any interference from the one whose divine law certainly applies to them. So essentially, Habakkuk is saying, Lord, the Babylonians do whatever they want and always get away with it because you never do anything to stop them. And yet, you say that we, your people, are now to taste the hook of judgment in our mouth, and that hook is going to be Babylon? That's not fair. That's not fair. But in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk settles down a bit, and then he speaks to himself, saying, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. It seems our philosopher prophet has now realized that the explanation he seeks is not one that can be deduced in terms of logic or a neat syllogism with premises that lead to a conclusion that follows necessarily, or even in an inference to the best explanation. The explanation is one that Habakkuk must patiently wait for. It must be revealed to him. It requires God's special revelation. No mortal mind can search it out. And here's God's second answer, chapter two, verses two through 20. Let's start with verses two and three. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So, I love this. God is prefacing what he is about to tell Habakkuk by saying, hey, I'm going to tell you something, and it's not going to happen immediately. So, just be patient, okay? And if you're waiting and waiting, and you still don't see it, just know that I have not forgotten. And then, God gives one more prefatory note in verse 4, saying, and this is a really important verse, Behold, his, the Babylonians, soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God is saying, Habakkuk, live by faith. 
not by sight, not by might, not by your own understanding, trust in me. So, prefatory note number one is Habakkuk, be patient, be patient and be patient. And prefatory note number two is Habakkuk, trust in me. And then God gives his second answer in the pronouncement of five woe oracles upon Babylon. They're words of judgment called, uh, called oracles. And each of these woe oracles describes a different type of sinful person and what they are guilty of and what God's judgment upon them will be. And for the sake of time, I've summarized each of these woe oracles into one sentence. So, woe number one tells us that the plunderer who plundered many nations will himself be plundered. And woe number two tells us that the plotter who plotted against many peoples will be condemned. And woe number three tells us that the proud who exalted themselves will shrink at the sight of the glory of God. And woe number four tells us that the perverter who disgraced God, or who disgraced man and beast in nature will himself be disgraced, put to shame. And lastly, woe number five tells us that the pagan who worshiped the work of his own hands will stand speechless like his own idols before the judgment seat of God. So here, God is saying, Habakkuk, I see all of Babylon's plundering, plotting, pride, perversion, and paganism, and they aren't going to get away with any of it. So God is going to allow the Babylonians to, from the evil of their own hearts, do what they want to do. And in some mysterious way, God will use Babylon's freely chosen sinful actions against Judah to achieve his purpose and plan. And Babylon will be held accountable. And here's how, how Habakkuk responds in chapter three. Uh, he begins by asking God to, in verse two, to preserve life and provide understanding and remember mercy. And then he reflects upon the acts of God throughout history. He reflects upon the displays of his wrath and glory. And he talks about his salvation and redemption, all those acts of salvation and redemption that he accomplished for his people. And he talks about the terrifying displays of his glory and holiness throughout history. And then in verse 16, Habakkuk says, he's responding directly to God's plan, and he says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And then Habakkuk continues in verse 
17 and 18, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says, come what may, even if I am to lose everything in this life, I still have you, Lord, and you are all. You are joy. You are the God of my salvation. And so the book of Habakkuk, which began with a doubting cry of pain and many question marks, ends with a trusting song of praise and an exclamation point. And how did Habakkuk get there? Three things. Number one, Habakkuk had to stop talking and listen to God. He had to stop talking and listen to God. Number two, Habakkuk had to be patient and wait for God. He had to be patient and wait for God. And number three, most importantly, which we're gonna talk about, Habakkuk had to contemplate God's words in chapter two, verse four, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. This phrase is really the key to the whole book and the moment it's spoken from the mouth of God, it seems like Habakkuk's whole attitude and tone begins to change. But here's the crazy thing, and I didn't figure this out the first few times that I read through Habakkuk, but the meaning of the phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith, actually expands and deepens throughout the book. So, I wanna dive deep into this concept of the righteous living by faith, showing how it becomes increasingly complex as the book of Habakkuk unfolds. So I'm gonna call this the five layers of faith in Habakkuk. The five layers of faith in Habakkuk. So if the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is an onion, we're gonna start peeling back layer after layer to discover deeper and deeper strata of complexity and understanding, okay? So, at layer one, we see two types of people. Layer one, two types of people. So, from a peripheral view of chapter two, verse four, we see that the righteous is contrasted with the one whose soul is puffed up, a proud, prideful person. And the text says that the righteous lives by faith, implying that the proud does not live by faith. Meaning, the proud person cannot be a righteous person because faith is connected to righteousness and the proud person has no faith. Application? We must trust that without faith, there is no righteousness. We must trust that without faith, there is no righteousness. 
Question. Do we really believe that this morning? Do we really believe Hebrews chapter 11 verse six that without faith it is impossible to please God? Let's look at layer two. Layer two shows us these two types lived out. Layer two, the two types lived out. So layer two begins to answer the question of why pride and righteousness cannot exist together and why faith and righteousness cannot exist apart. And we can answer the first question with another question. What do prideful people put their faith, their trust in? Their intellect, their knowledge, their strength, their power, their plan. They live their life in a way that is very self-centered. But the righteous, they live by faith and they trust in God's intellect and God's knowledge and God's strength and God's power and God's plan. They live their life in a way that is very God-centered. So here in Habakkuk, God is saying, do not trust in yourself. Do not center your existence around yourself. Do not be full of yourself. Trust in me. Center your existence around me and be full of me. Question. Actually, let me give you an application first. We must trust in God and not in ourselves. Okay? We must trust in God and not in ourselves. Question, who are we really trusting in this morning? Whose existence are we centered around? Who are we full of this morning? Let's look at layer three. Layer three, appearances versus reality of the two types. Layer three, appearances versus reality of the two types. Now at layer three, we see a couple different things, but we have to first consider the context of the whole book and the fact that God is going to use a seemingly more wicked nation, Babylon, to discipline a seemingly less wicked nation, Judah. So by appearances, Babylon is being let off the hook. And furthermore, they plunder and they plot and they exalt themselves in pride and they pervert what is good and they worship pagan gods and things seem to be going pretty good for them. But Judah, God's own people, things don't seem to be going so well for them and Babylon's coming for them. So, (laughs) but notice how God describes Babylon in chapter two, verse four. He says, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. It is not upright within him. Meaning, 
though the proud person may be standing straight and walking tall on the outside, on the inside, deep within the person, is a twisted, crooked, mangled mess. They're alone without God in the world. And their joy is dependent on their circumstances. And they don't know the truth. And they're dead inside. And also remember God's five woe oracles. Babylon isn't ultimately going to get away with anything. So this life of pain and suffering and death is the best it's ever going to be for them. And it's the closest they'll ever be to heaven. For them, the worst is yet to come. But deep within the righteous is an upright soul that trusts in God despite appearances and despite circumstances. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, Paul says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. On the outside, afflicted. But on the inside, empowered by the Holy Spirit with weapons of righteousness. On the outside, dying, wasting away. But on the inside, alive with a life that will never die. On the outside, sorrowful. But on the inside, always rejoicing on the outside, possessing nothing, having nothing, but on the inside, possessing all, everything, the all in all. Maybe Habakkuk said it best himself in chapter three, verses 17 through 18, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Wow. See, God's people know that this life is the worst it's ever gonna be. This life is the closest we will ever be to hell. For us, the best is yet to come. And yet, even now, as we await that day, there is a real satisfaction and joy and life to be had in God, despite appearances, 
and despite circumstances. So here in Habakkuk, God is saying, the righteous who live by faith know that my word and my promises are a better indication of reality than what your own eyes can see or your own ears can hear or your own heart can fathom. Application, we must trust God's word and promises before our own senses and feelings. We must trust God's word and promises before our own senses and feelings. Question, do we listen to ourselves, to our senses and feelings more than we speak to ourselves, God's word and promises? Do we listen to ourselves more than we speak to ourselves? Let's look at level four, layer four rather. Layer four, a straight line with crooked sticks. Layer four, a straight line with crooked sticks. Martin Luther once said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Meaning, even sinful, crooked sticks of people are fine instruments in the hands of God. Somehow, he is using them to draw the straight line of his eternal purpose and plan. And this is precisely what we see in the book of Habakkuk. God using the freely chosen sinful actions of Babylon to discipline Judah according to his purpose and plan. And this isn't unique to the book of Habakkuk. Joseph's brothers in Genesis, they were crooked sticks. They hated Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. But God raised up Joseph to become second in command to Pharaoh, and God used Joseph to make provisions for a famine, which ultimately spared the lives of many people, including Joseph's own brothers. And even Joseph recognized how his brother's sinful actions were used of God, and he said at the end of Genesis, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Meaning, God in his grace brought good out of your evil. Or how about Moses? He was a crooked stick. He's dodging a murder charge when God calls him to lead his people out of Egypt. And Rahab was a crooked stick. She was a prostitute, and yet God used her to save two Israelite spies from the king of Jericho. And guess who Rahab the prostitute was the mother of? Boaz, that's right. The husband of Ruth, who gave birth to Obed, who gave birth to Jesse, who gave birth to King David. And King David was a crooked stick. He was an adulterer and a murderer, but in God's hands, he became the greatest king of Israel. And it was through the line of King David that the king of kings came into the world, Jesus Christ. And throughout the entire Bible are stories of God using crooked sticks to draw the straight line of his, his eternal purpose and plan, just as he's doing here in the book of Habakkuk. Application, we must trust 
that God's purpose and plan are always being accomplished. We must trust that God's purpose and plan are always being accomplished. Question. Do we believe that there is even a single rogue molecule in this universe existing outside of God's sovereign providential control, let alone a single human being created in God's image? And lastly, layer five, Habakkuk, a crooked stick. Layer five, Habakkuk, a crooked stick. Let's look once again at chapter three, verse 16a. Habakkuk says, I hear God and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Now what exactly is happening here? Why is Habakkuk so distraught? One commentator on this passage says this, the bones which keep the whole frame of man together and which remain unconsumed long after the rest of the body has wasted away in the grave, here Habakkuk says that rottenness entered into them, making him unable to stand, feeling sin and death in every fiber of his frame. Habakkuk's words remind me of the words of another prophet, Isaiah, who said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or Job, who said, I had heard of you, Lord, by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For each of these men, Habakkuk, Isaiah, and Job, their encounters with the holiness of God produced within them great fear and trembling and the recognition of just how unholy they were just how not like God they were. I like how R.C. Sproul puts it in his book, The Holiness of God, using these three men as an example. He says, the holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. Whoa, have you ever thought about that? About God's holiness being a cause of trauma? Well, maybe we think about it this way. If we were made to stand in the presence of the most perfect and stunningly beautiful and irresistibly attractive person in all creation, both physically and morally, would we not be instantaneously confronted by how not like that person we are? Wouldn't that person make us feel so flawed and hideously ugly and abhorrently repulsive compared to them? And if they were the standard for how perfect and beautiful and attractive we had to be, would we not similarly say, woe is me, 
for I am lost and I despise myself and I feel this rottenness within me. I can hardly stand. See, previously Habakkuk was comparing himself to Babylon saying, Lord, they are way worse than us. Why do you only discipline us and allow them to do whatever they want? It's not fair. It's not what they deserve. But now it seems Habakkuk is involuntarily comparing himself to God saying, oh Lord, in your holy presence, I feel this rottenness within me. I feel this death pouring out of me. And then the next words that come out of his mouth come out in a song of praise and rejoicing in the God of his salvation because he knows just how gracious and merciful God has been to him. He knows that it's not fair. He knows that he does not deserve a single thing. And I think this is the deepest level of faith we find in the book of Habakkuk, a faith that understands that in every circumstance, in every circumstance, we, crooked sticks in the hands of the holy God, are just recipients of grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Application? I don't know if this is grammatically correct, but it sounds right in my head. We must trust that we are only ever always <laughs> just recipients of God's grace. We must trust that we are only ever always just recipients of God's grace. You know, a common question I think people have a tendency to ask in times of suffering are, how could a good and loving and gracious God let this happen? Whatever it is, how could a good and loving and gracious God let it happen? And without getting into the different kinds of answers that theologians and apologists and pastors have given, to these kinds of questions, I just want to point out that a question I have hardly ever heard anybody ask is, how could a good and loving and gracious God let an innocent man suffer for my damnable guilt? How could a good and loving and gracious God allow his own son to take my crown of thorns, all my sin and rebellion upon himself to give me a crown of glory and honor in return. How could a good and loving and gracious God want anything to do with me? Compared to the holy God, I am not a good person. And I am not a loving person. And I am definitely not a gracious person. Who am I that the God of the universe would take notice of me and lavish upon me in Jesus such boundless yet costly grace? Answer, only because he is so good 
and so loving and so gracious. I think sometimes our natural gut response is to actually be emotionally dull and just fine accepting that an innocent man suffered hell for us, but then to immediately point the finger at God with all emotional intensity and an attitude of absolute intolerance when we suffer. God, how could you? How could you? And look, the last thing I want to do is downplay suffering in this life or pretend that it doesn't matter or tell you that it's really not that bad in light of eternity. It is that bad. It is that bad. It's terrible. Even creation is groaning because this is not the way things were meant to be. My question, though, is should we not be asking the question, God, how could you from the opposite angle in utter astonishment for what Jesus has done for us? Should we not be asking Jesus, how could you? It's not fair, it's not what I deserved. How could you? And why did you? The point I'm trying to make is that we must always remember that at the center of our faith, is a savior who suffered a suffering that is infinitely worse than the sufferings of this life for us. At the center of our faith stands a cross, a cross where through the sinful actions of Judas Iscariot and the Jewish religious leaders and the people who shouted crucify him, crucify him, and the Romans and you and I, but also through the good, loving, and gracious acts of the God who brings good out of evil. Salvation was accomplished. Meaning, every spiritual blessing we have, forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin's power, spiritual life, reconciliation, with God, relationship with God, adoption into the family of God, all of the promises of God, it all hinges upon our faith that God is good and loving and gracious. To ever question that is to saw off the branch of goodness, love, and grace that we are presently sitting on. And so, in the face of evil, and whenever we suffer in this life, the gospel ought to motivate us to faith, not only as it reminds us that God is in control and is in the business of bringing good out of evil, but also as it shows us the real face of evil, our sin, for which Jesus suffered and died in love. And so the book of Habakkuk shows us a few layers of this onion. The righteous shall live by faith. Layer one, trusting that without faith there is no righteousness. 
Layer two, trusting that, uh, trusting in God and not in ourselves. Layer three, trusting God's word and promises before our own senses and feelings. Layer four, trusting that God's purpose and plan is always being accomplished. And layer five, trusting that we are only ever always just recipients of God's grace. But it's not until we get to the gospel that we discover the explanation for how any fallen sinful man could be said to be righteous. And that, the sixth layer, is Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Layer six, Jesus' substitutionary atonement, whereby he traded our filthy rags of sin and unrighteousness for the royal robe of his perfect righteousness, which now clothes and covers all who trust in him. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Mark Twain called it the prince and the pauper. I like to call it carrying out my death sentence when I sat on death row. But I also like to call it God's cosmic I love you. God's cosmic I love you. Application. We must trust that our righteous standing before God is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. We must trust that our righteous standing before God is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. You know, the fact that we're all here together this morning, sitting in this room, is real, tangible evidence of God's goodness and love and grace for each of us, not only personally, but also corporately as a church body. Some of you may not know this, but in the 1800s, thousands upon thousands of Scandinavians began immigrating to America, and many of them Christians. And many of them settled in the Midwest, but a significant number of them continued west and settled right here in the Pacific Northwest. And, in fact, a good number of them settled literally right here in Stanwood. And for a long time, Stanwood was a little Scandinavia. And the reason is because Stanwood was the home of the very first Norwegian Lutheran Church in the Pacific Northwest, which brought a huge influx of all kinds of Scandinavians into Stanwood. That church is our Savior's Lutheran downtown, which was built in 1879 and then rebuilt in 1894 after a fire destroyed the original building. But many of the Swedes who lived in Stanwood didn't know Norwegian. And so, in 1890, a group of them 
started a little church here called Cedar Home Baptist. Meaning, part of the reason we are all sitting in this room this morning can be traced all the way back to the Viking raid on Lindisfarne, June 8th, 793 AD. And who knows all the ways that God has brought good out of that horrendous act of evil. And who knows all the ways that God is continuing to bring good out of it and will continue to bring good out of it in the future. So, question. As we literally sit here this morning, will we trust him? In Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this little Old Testament book, Habakkuk, which is so relevant and so relatable to people like us who suffer as a natural consequence of living in a broken and fallen world and in these bodies with hearts and minds that have been affected by sin. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith when we are faithless and that in every circumstance you would remind us that you are the sovereign and holy God and more than worthy of our trust. Lord, you are worthy of our every thought, our every move, our every breath. You've saved us in Jesus, bringing good out of our evil for us. So Lord, I ask that you would be with us, that you would remind us of this gospel and that you would help us in our weakness for your glory alone. Amen.